Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Last week, as, uh, as you know, if you were here, um, I came back from just off the plane from uh, the retreat, the six-week retreat that I sat at, uh, at IMS doing metta. And I was still kind of shiny, perhaps. I felt shiny inside and um, had that, that afterglow, which is starting to recede as I come back to planet Earth. But it's still with me. Um, and I talked mostly about what a fascinating process the, the metta practice is and how, uh, what a blessing it is to go on retreats, and it is. I mentioned in passing the fact that besides it being fantastic, it's also really hard work. I want to talk a little bit more about that and about commitment to doing this practice and to waking up tonight. Sometimes when I be on the retreat, and this happens almost every retreat, also when, I, when I'm teaching as well, the first few days particularly, the thought comes usually sooner than later. Why are we doing this? <laughs> so hard. Your body is aching. It's humbling to see your mind everywhere except in the present or on love or whatever you're, you're trying to cultivate. And then you get I go through this almost every um, every day. I wake up early time is my is my best time uh, in the morning sometimes, and I wake up pretty early as my sleep needs go down. But then I I go through the day, and towards the end, particularly after the Dharma talk, which is a lot of stimulation after you you've been doing practice for the full day for me anyway. I'm kind of reeling a bit, unless I stay very focused and don't open up my eyes and just um, certain times I can get energized, but usually it's like a crash afterwards. And I go to the last sitting, but it's like I'm going because I'm hanging in there and I've made a commitment to do the, the whole uh, schedule. And I go to bed these days right after that last sitting, and then I wake up whenever I wake up. Um, in the early days, I, I, earlier days in my practice, I would go through late night sitting and, um, and keep on going. But I find it, for me, it works better to wake up refreshed. And I say to myself, as I get in under the covers, thankfully, you know, finally, the, I can get in under the covers. I've earned it, right? My body is kind of is tired. My mind is fuzzy and bleary that last that last sitting and then I say may I have enough sleep 
as much sleep as I need to wake up feeling healed and refreshed and ready to put a full day of sincere practice in. And then I wake up amazingly often you know, healed and raring to go again. And it is so amazing, remarkable how much I look forward to the sleep and to just stopping all of this and then I wake up saying, okay, here we go again. It's this uh, strange addiction, healthy addiction, I think. It's, a com- it's compelling and it is really it takes a lot of intention, a lot of hard work, whether you're doing Vipassana or, or Metta. If you were to take somebody off the street and say, okay, sit there and pay attention, they wouldn't last very long. In fact, the thought came to me, wow, I wonder if Michael Jordan could do this. I'd have him a sitting contest and just say, <laughs> I bet it would be really probably one of the hardest things that he'd ever do. Sit still. Well, it's hard and challenging on retreat, and as you know, if you've done retreats, it's also well worth it. And it's also hard and challenging in daily life. Just even to get to the cushion is a big deal for many of us. Okay. Once you're there, often it's, oh, yeah, gee, it's nice being here. But besides the formal meditation practice, having an ongoing focus of waking up is really hard. It's really humbling when you see all the things that get in the way. And I've seen it this week as I came back full of loving kindness and the barrage of different stimuli and different interactions and uh, people who are not coming from the same place I, I have been, have their kind of negativity or contraction or you know what's wrong with, with life in the world. And there I am. May I be safe from inner and outer harm. May I be healthy and strong. May you see another perspective in things. You know. uh, it's really hard. And it can sometimes be so much of a, seem like an uphill battle, because it is like going upstream against the current, that one can just say, oh, either forget it or well I'll do I'll do a little bit and I don't have I won't have much um, expectation it's good not to have too much expectation but much um, entertaining the possibility of developing much within myself and one can get either discouraged or almost as bad complacent about their practice. And I don't mean just formal meditation practice, but their spiritual life. This is uh, the Buddha's words 
on complacency. He said, I exhort you, this is near the end of his life, I exhort you, all processes are subject to decay. Everything passes. Bring about completion by being uncomplacent. Do not be complacent. Be uncomplacent. Be mindful. Be virtuous. With your aspirations well concentrated, look after your minds. One who, in this doctrine and discipline, remains uncomplacent will make an end of suffering and stress. And one other line that I, I love by the Buddha. If it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. It is possible. And this is why I encourage you to do so. Then he gives this example about being devoted to development. Suppose a hen has eight, ten, or twelve eggs. If she doesn't cover them tightly, warm them rightly, or incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely, Still, it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them, warmed them, or incubated them rightly. In the same way, even though this wish may occur to one who dwells without devoting himself or herself to development, Oh, that my mind might be released from confusion through lack of clinging. Even though one has that wish, gee, I hope that happens. <laughs> Still, the mind is not released from confusion through lack of clinging. Why is that? From lack of developing, it should be said. And then he goes on to say, lack of developing what? Then he has a few lists, the four frames of reference, the, the right effort, four bases of power, five faculties, five, seven factors of enlightenment, noble eightfold path. But the gist of it is having that aspiration and a commitment to following through on it. He gives the other example, <coughs> corollary, but suppose a hen has eight, ten, or twelve eggs that she covers rightly, warms rightly, and incubates rightly. Even though this wish may not occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spike claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Still, it is possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells with their spike claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has covered them, warmed them, and incubated them rightly. In the same way, even though this wish may not occur to one who dwells devoting him, himself or herself to development, oh, that my mind might be released from confusion through lack of clinging. Even if one doesn't have that wish, if one 
keeps developing, has a commitment to develop, still that mind is released from confusion through lack of clinging. Why is that? From developing, it should be said. So, I, I ask you a question that I've asked from time to time. It's been, I think, a couple of years since I, I asked this, but this came to me strongly on the retreat, and this is really the, the impetus for this topic. Is your spiritual life a hobby? Is waking up something nice to do that keeps you out of trouble, gives you a little bit of entertainment and community on Thursday night. Is your spiritual practice the center of your life? Is it what really matters? And when I say spiritual practice, I just want to define it the way I'm using it so one doesn't think, oh, that means becoming a devout Buddhist and learning the chants and doing whatever ablutions seem to be called for. Really, I mean by spiritual, becoming conscious in your lifetime, waking up as best you can, freeing the heart of confusion, of contraction, so that the possibility of understanding and real caring and connection can emerge. Developing qualities that lead to real peace and happiness and fulfillment not just for yourself, but really as a gift to the world. How important is that to you? And I don't want you to judge yourself if you think, oh, on a scale of one to a hundred, I'm kind of, you know, wimpy. I just want you to get clear, because perhaps it's more important than you have realized. Or perhaps it's not as important, but there you are wishing and wondering why it's not happening. That's okay, as long as you get clear on where you're at. When you think about, when I think about the possibilities or the options, I can make the Dharma or those qualities of of waking up and becoming conscious as something that's interesting or I can ask myself what else is there to do in my life and for me it perhaps because I came from such mm, confusion and desperation and um, Yeah, desperation, I'd say. I didn't even know how desperate I was until I saw the possibilities. Uh, It very quickly was my 
salvation. And when I saw the possibilities or the choices, uh, then that intention to make my life uh, my practice, make my practice my life, then um, very wonderful things started happening. I didn't even know I felt that deeply about, about things until I got in touch with that. <clears throat> the power of what you do, the power of the seeds that you're sowing as you continue to have that intention of developing yourself is cannot be estimated or underestimated. There's a, a story that perhaps you've heard Jack Cornfield uh, tells it of being called. He was called by this guy who was a very successful businessman who had done a retreat about 10 years earlier, one retreat, and then kind of said, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, maybe I'll come back to that, but devoted the next 10 years of his life to uh, becoming a successful business person, which is not, it's not bad to become successful, but um, he just kind of left that other stuff for the back burner. Well, he, um, he developed uh, a brain tumor and he was um, then given a very immediate and intense ultimatum. He had to have an operation within, they discovered this, and he had to have an operation within the next uh, 48 hours, or it would be um, uh, past the, the, uh, the danger point. And um, the chances of him living through the operation I think we're, slightly more than 50%. And there was a chance also that he would um, lose the power of speech and, um, and thinking, because right? it was at a very critical place in the, in the brain. And he had to decide whether to, um, to have this operation. And when he was faced with that crisis, the, the only thing that mattered was um, his spiritual life. And he thought back to his, his retreat and to this practice and to try to get some kind of perspective on, on what life was about and called Jack in. He's the only person that he wanted to speak to. As it happened, he had the operation and it was successful. But what was really poignant was those seeds that he sowed 10 years before bearing fruit. Now imagine if one dedicates one's life to sowing those seeds. You can't underestimate what you're doing. Imagine further still if not just putting in your time here and there and you know maybe doing a daily practice but but not having uh, it's one level to not have it as a centerpiece it's another one as I said to dedicate one's life to um, to developing those qualities 
it's very, very potent what you're doing. And the interesting thing is, as it's said in the scriptures, that when one aims for the highest happiness, full freedom or awakening, then all the other happinesses along the way are experienced. Because as you purify yourself, as you uh, become more harmonious in your life in the world, your good conduct, virtue, then as you're practicing generosity, generosity comes back to you. As you're practicing kindness, love and kindness come back to you. As you're practicing patience, that comes back to you. So you're sowing the seeds for, for lots of good energy to come back to you. As you practice, you are, your needs are diminished and so you're more contented with what you have and there's a, a feeling of abundance. And so on the physical plane, that happiness can get experienced. Also, you're planting the seeds for, for good, um, wholesome rewards to come if you believe in karma. But aiming for the highest along the way there are other happinesses to be experienced. It's a mysterious thing hearing this call that says, okay, this is what really matters to me. And as I said, I, I heard that call when I was 27 and it changed my life. There are different motivations and each one of us has heard some call in order for us to be here tonight. And it's such a rare thing to hear that call. This is from uh, Punjaji, one of my teachers. He says, There is a river of thought waves. Everyone is being washed downstream. Everyone is clinging to these thoughts and being washed away. Just give rise to the single thought, I want to be free. This thought will rarely come out of the entire population. The entire population of the planet is moving downstream. They are not destined to give rise to the thought, I want to be free in this very lifetime. So I call this thought of freedom going against the stream and toward the source. It does not require any effort to give rise to this thought. This thought will take you to freedom. It is the most rare thought. Out of the entire population of six billion, only a handful give rise to this thought. How extraordinary. Now, it might seem kind of like a, an elitist statement. Whether or not it's Buddhist having that thought, he's not a Buddhist per se. I mean, you can be Christian or, or Jewish or... Hindu or whatever and have that thought. But it is a pretty rare thought. It doesn't occur to most people that the game is not about getting as much as you can, <coughs> as quickly as you can, you know, more than everyone around if you want to be a success. It's not so common that that thought comes or even less common that you have the opportunity and the circumstances to, to act on it. 
so I ask you as as we uh, go on what motivates you what has been your motivation that really hooked you that would lead to say coming here on a Thursday night whether it was two years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago or three weeks ago what really grabs you okay and I'd like you to just go inside and see if you can remember see if your body can remember that awe that excitement of another possibility Remember where you were when it really clicked. Can you feel it again? Just for a, a moment remembering. something very precious that um, we can't contact too much. It's written in different texts, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, talking about four mind-changing reflections. This is also in the Theravadan, but the Tibetans a lot about this. Four mind-changing reflections that highly motivate one to rearrange priorities. One reflection is on impermanence. That is, how quickly things change in this world of impermanence. What are we after that's going to bring us lasting happiness? What can we possibly experience that will say, ah, now I've gotten what I wanted out of life. And because of impermanence, how quickly our life passes, that leads us to a reflection of death. As Castaneda says, having death over your left shoulder, it goes by very quickly, okay? What matters to you? Getting the next ice cream cone? Another reflection that reprioritizes is the preciousness of a human birth. This is said to be one of the best circumstances to wake up. It's probably a little bit harder if you're a cockroach or a paramecium, or a mouse, or any other in the animal realm. And there's not that many people relative to all the other living organisms on the planet. Imagine how rare that is. I think uh, maybe I mentioned it here. I remember once seeing in this book about ants that if you put all the ants on one side of a scale and all the humans on the other side, the ants would outweigh them like 65 times. So 
imagine how many ants that is? <laughs> how rare it is to be born human. What are we going to do with our life? And that's just on the human and the animal realm. Then there's other realms, you know, that I won't even go into. Preciousness of this human birth. This is the place that we can have the optimal balance of pleasure and pain. Enough pleasure to get us caught and enough pain to get us caught. <laughs> enough the, po the possibility, not just being in the middle of pain all the time, but to see, oh, there's a greater pleasure that we can have. So that's a second reflection. A third is reflecting on the shortcomings of samsara, it's called. That is, um, going around and around on this wheel, this cycle of, of birth and death and birth and death. You know. Again, there's not going to be much that will do it for us. And if we're cultivating more confusion, it's very, very painful. And most people, as, we, as I just said, don't see what real happiness is. And they're, as the Buddha said when he was, uh, when he was moved to, to teach, how he saw people all around wanting to be happy and doing the very things that would cause unhappiness. It's so easy to get caught in what we think will bring us happiness and bring us more suffering. And there is suffering in life. This is the first noble truth. So the shortcomings of samsara. And then the fourth reflection is the reflection on karma. That what you develop or what you practice, you will develop. So if you're cultivating greed, hatred, and delusion, that's what you will develop. And there will be karmic results of that. If you're cultivating wisdom and generosity and kindness, that's what will be developed. So really, the choice is, is yours. When we can get in touch with whatever it is that motivates us, we can have a vision that can inspire us. Vision can either discourage or inspire. If the vision is, oh, I wish I'll never get there, then it's discouraging. If it's, yes, this is what really matters to me, this is what I want to dedicate my life to, it can be inspiring. As it's said in the Eightfold Path, right aspiration, when one has w right understanding, the first factor of the Eightfold Path, that leads to right aspiration, what one really wants to create in one's life. Also called clear comprehension of purpose. It gives meaning to our lives. Now, it's very easy to evaluate and say, oh, I'm not there yet, or look what, how, how awful I'm doing. But that is secondary to your motivation. Um, as I've mentioned here before, I remember hearing the Dalai Lama say, and I, I mentioned this last week actually as well uh, as my reflection for the, 
for the practice, my sincere motivation is my protection. What a wonderful comfort in practice. My sincere motivation is my protection. It doesn't matter what else is happening. If you have that motivation, you're doing your part. The rest is up to the Dharma. And you don't have to be busy evaluating how quickly it's happening or if it's happening and, or getting caught in striving. But just having that sincerity of heart makes it all come to life. Trungpa Rinpoche said, the spiritual path is filled with challenges and disappointments. Consider carefully what you are entering into. But once you start, it is best to finish. <laughs> it's tricky when you get caught in between saying, oh gosh, I wish I wouldn't have started this thing. Look at all the, all the craziness. Look at how my mind works. Look at how my, I get confused. Look at how nasty I am or other people are around me. You know, I would have been better off not seeing this. Ignorance is bliss. Once you start, it's best to finish because what's your choice? Go back to how it was before. So I say this um, to have you reflect on what your intention is and also just to let you know I'm somewhat motivated to, um, to challenge, to have us challenge our complacency. And I say this for myself as well as, as, well as for you. You know, sometimes I, I've given some we've talked about a topic and given some suggested reflection or something to look at during the week. And I know what it's like, you know, you just kind of forget more than anything. But I really want us to um, take seriously with a sense of lightness. This doesn't have to be solemn and heavy. And that does not work for me. But with a sense of lightness and adventure, but commitment, uh, what we're doing here. So that it's not just about Thursday, it's, it's about the whole week. Maybe perhaps having buddies in between might help as well. Somebody to check in once, once a week for a few minutes. Uh, but those who are interested um, I want to. Um, I want us to keep on lighting that fire of um, enthusiasm and commitment for our spiritual life. So I'll just end, and then we can have a discussion with this quote from uh, the Scottish Himalayan Expedition by W. H. Murray. This is made the rounds in recent years. It's a wonderful quote. 
until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back always ineffectiveness concerning all acts of initiative and creation there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that is that the moment one definitely commits oneself then providence moves to whatever providence is. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I have learned a deep respect for one, one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So, Comments, questions, and let's experiment with the talking stick. We can pass as a community. Okay. Yeah, speak right into it. Speak right into it. I grew up very goal-oriented and a long term goal about you know, graduating from kindergarten and graduating from high school and that sort of stuff. In the late seventies I had a goal to take a trip around the world. So spent three years seeing the world and I did it. I had a great trip and I got back and had no idea what to set the next goal. And literally spent the next five years just floundering around, you know, just not having any for your lifeblood to, to do this. <laughs> Hopefully, the idea is that it's, it's, a joyous, uh, it's a joyous feeling. 
It's not something that should be a burden. And that, that's, I just want to put in that piece and, and underscore it. Whether your goal is enlightenment, which is a pretty lofty and inspiring goal, and for some it really, really works, or simply just purifying the heart or learning to love more or learning to understand what suffering is about, whatever the one is that touches you is the right one. And it's a source of inspiration and joy. As long as you're not using the measuring stick, am I there yet? Then it's just giving our lives some direction and meaning. Meaning, that's what I'm talking about. Speak right into it. Um, put it right up to your mouth. It's a, it's a good question. This is sometimes called the path with no railings. The path with no railings. It's, it's not as comfortable as being devoted to God or to some being or to Jesus and um, that will take care of you when you're uh, getting lost. Uh, but for me, as I've said before, the word God tr- is translated as Dharma uh, or mystery. You know, God is just, it's a word for the unnameable. Uh, and I guess for each of us, we have to take a look at what our spiritual life is about, why we are drawn to it. For me, for many years, the, the motivation the commitment was to purifying my heart, just just to purifying. Then it, at some point it was to become fully awake. And it's gone through other periods where it, it's changed. Um, so it's a good question and I think I can't give you the answer but it's very important to reflect on what it is that you're committing yourself to, why you, why you do practice, what your vision of, of doing all this is. Have you, do you consider that? Do you? 
I think it's something not to take lightly, but to really reflect so you know. Because the clearer you are about why you do this, the more energy and enthusiasm you have for it. Well, if I could show it to you, I would. <laughs> I'll pull it out of the back of the book. This is what it really is. You know, what you're asking for is, is impossible. I think it's something you need to look just in your heart for, for what it means for you. And I, for actually, the word enlightenment is a very tricky one. I don't use it so, so often, only if it comes up in a you know, in a pointed discussion, because there can be as many definitions or ideas as there are people. The basic definition in the Buddha's terminology is the mind or the heart freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay. Now, that might look different to different people. It might mean the mind or heart where those thoughts never arise, or it might be the mind or heart where those thoughts arise but are not, they don't stick and they self-liberate because there's not a, uh, there's not identification with them. Like I say, there's lots of different motivations and the important thing is what really motivates you. But I
If I make it through 